We got another one coming at you, Foul Life Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you again by our friends at Gerber Gear. Stay Sharp America. You know we depend on Gerber for everything from blind building to cutting that breast meat off of a mallard duck, a speckle belly goose, or those hind quarters off a Rocky Mountain elk, a mule deer, a whitetail deer. We love to live off the land. We love to hunt. We love to fish. We love to eat wild. Gerber Gear supports our culture, our lifestyle. We depend on Gerber. Today's episode of the Foul Eye Podcast is also brought to you by our friends out of the great state of Tennessee, Final Flight Outfitters for all of your shooting, fishing, hunting, turkey hunting, deer hunting, waterfowl hunting, duck hunting, goose hunting needs. It's owned by the Powers Brothers. They are royalty in the waterfowl industry. And today we have one of the Powers Brothers back on the show. We love having Mr. Kelly Powers. My brother, how are you? I'm good, buddy. How's everything? It's good, buddy. It's good. It's uh, it's weird because it's supposed to be a foot of snow on the ground out where I live in the mountains, and it's 70 degrees almost today, and it's March 3rd. You may tell you something even, even weirder than that is, of course, where I live in Tennessee, we don't get much snow. But 10 days ago, we had about 10 inches of snow on the ground, and right now it is 4 in the afternoon and 63 degrees. Just crazy, <laughs> crazy swing of weather. It's nuts, man. It's so crazy. Did y'all have a good winter for the duck season? No, we didn't. Honestly, it was it, typical good coach snap November, first coach snaps of the year, push ducks in. December gets really stagnant, a lot of still weather days, not much wind, and relatively mild. S- carries on into January with just a little mild cold front here and there, nothing crazy, and then February hits and just a massive Arctic blast and, you know, when season's over. So did you have some of those sunshining mallards in your dish days? Did you get to experience a couple at least? Yeah. I, I mean, we had some of those days, but not your prototypical, you know, to, to really have that effect, you need that in December, at, at least here, you know, you're getting those ducks coming right down the flyway that are fresh. Um, a lot of times if it happens, or very rarely does it happen after the 10th of January. You know, those, from my experience, you know, anything past the 10th of January, unless it's just an extreme cold weather event, the ducks just wait it out. They'll hunker down and they'll wait as long as they can. And if they get a deep snowfall and a cold weather event on top of it, well, it'll move some around. Uh, but it's got to be something significant. Um, if it's just a good cold blast one day and calm the next, we just don't see it anytime after after the middle of January. Now, if that happens in December, it's amplified. You know, it, you, you're more likely to get a good bit of good bit of birds pushed in. Being where you're at, kind of in that the mecca of waterfowling, Real Foot Lake area. You got Arkansas close by. You have Southeast Missouri, aka the Boot Hill, close by. You got the Mississippi Delta. You're not far from any of that. What were you hearing? as a whole around the, the, I mean, that it truly is the waterfowl capital of uh, the continental United States, you know, per se, I know you can go to North Dakota and get them. I know you can go to Montana and get them, but that's where the mallards are come December. What were you hearing as a whole? Honestly, uh, it's, 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 a, it's very alarming in a negative way. Uh, a lot of people are very concerned on our duck migrations, more particularly our mallard migrations. Uh, we're not seeing the numbers at all. Um, and the aerial surveys back that up. 
the data supports it, especially in Arkansas game and fish, you know, their, their aerial counts are, are, I mean, less than half of the long-term average. Like it's, it's substantial. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, you know, contributing factors, you know, how, you know, the last two years, not, not including this year, but the previous two years before this year, there was a high water event. The Mississippi river was out, uh, the white river, the cat, you know, all of those tributaries were pretty much out of their banks for a, a large percentage of the season. So what that really did is it kind of disguised the poor duck hunting season for us. Cause you know, a lot of people would, would contribute the, the lack of seeing birds as, you know, a lot of birds are scattered of uh, that much water. It just scatters the ducks and that, you know, common sense will tell you that this year wasn't the case. This year was relatively a drought. Um, and which would, you would think would congregate large quantities of waterfowl and they just weren't there. Um, what ducks you did get, you know, as soon as they arrive, they will not leave their safe haven until after dark. Um, and if you don't have any type of weather event to stir them around, just they're not going to happen but even what birds are there it, it's very poor in numbers and that's alarming um I, you know there's a lot of different a lot of different contributing factors to that uh i, I think pressure is probably the number one contributing factor i think as a mid-south duck hunter we have to look at ourselves in the mirror long and hard and think about how we hunt you know sitting in a blind from daylight to dark and pounding on them the days of seeing traffic at least in my particular area, the days of just hunting traffic every day, you got to be in a unique area to do that um, and to have success. You know, we, we do have some private farms that we hunt on and the best amount of success that we've seen is to manage it, you know, appropriately. Whereas when I get ducks in November, I need to depend on hunting those ducks until, you know, till the end of season. Um, I, I know that's, that's, that's a, a kind of a hard to do, but, but it makes you think where we go in and we may hunt certain properties only once a week and dare not leave decoys out, you know, leaving a decoy out. And when you're not hunting is educating them almost as much as shooting into them. You know, when they're flying over those decoys two, three, four, five times, and let's not kid ourselves, you know, if we were to see how many times a duck flew over the same, our same spread, I think it would alarm us, you know, and, and when you're hunting, especially private farms and you see four ducks or come in or three gray ducks or this or that three hours later, you see three gray ducks and then four pintails, you know, you don't have to see that too many times. You realize we're working the same ducks that we saw at seven o'clock this morning, you know, so constantly changing things. And for us, picking our decoys up when we hunt, setting up in a different location, you know, letting the farm set for several days, trying to hold those ducks, you know, yes, you're not getting the, the hours setting of hunting, season long but the times you are out there is a more quality hunt so as a whole that part of the country is not experiencing the duck hunting that we read about in wild fowler ducks unlimited 99 2000 time frame it's you know as a general statement no it is it is not um and then I'm just being truthful. Not saying you can't have a good hunt. That's not the case. I mean, obviously you can. And but it is alarming to see the 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 lack of mallard numbers in the mid south compared to you know two years ago, or, or even the, let's just go the long term, the ten year average. You know, when it the the counts don't support it, um, there's there's something there, 
and 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 there's a lot of speculation that you know pressure is our our migrations are shifting further west the central flyway and i mean let's face it central flyway duck mississippi flyway duck they all run together in the dakotas you know at what point does that duck decide to go in the central flyway versus down the missouri river and dump into the mississippi well then i don't know you know but at some point they do that and i think you would have to be naive to think that the pressure in the Mississippi flyway is not a contributing factor because at some point I think it is, you know, and there's so many farms now and private landowners that hunt. And even, even though, uh, and, and a lot of them hunt every day, you know, and, and just in West Tennessee alone, I, I can, you get on an aerial photo and you see the amount of spreads and permanent blinds and people that are hunting every day. It's just times are changed. Times are different. Um, and I, we, in the last couple of years, we're not seeing what we call traffic ducks, ducks that are just flying the bottom, mingling from point A to point B. You just don't see that. And I think why you don't see that is because every time they fly, they leave the refuge going to another refuge between point A and point B, they're called at, they're harassed, they're shot at, they're like, they see spread of decoys. So we're training them to just sit tight on the refuge until after dark and they become nocturnal. And, and the more you're, you're, you're breeding that into them, uh, then that's kind of what we're evolved into. And the only way to alleviate that is to take a long hook at, look in the mirror of how we hunt and change up how we hunt. Instead of setting a blind all day, maybe pick your decoys up, maybe do something different, maybe, you know, um, and I don't know the right answer. Uh, I, I wish I did, but I, I do compare it to some of our private farms and some of the private landowners that are managing their resource. They're not out there every single day and they're still having quality hunts, but they're not, you know, it's, it's less number of days, but the days they do go out there, it's a fresh decoy spread and it's, it's a relatively a better successful hunt per hunter. So as much as you love duck hunting, Kelly, does this force a Southern man, a mid Southern man like yourself to go to where the ducks are and find them wherever they're at. Now I know that you work in the industry. I know that you co-host a TV show with Higdon Outdoors. I know that you own a duck and goose call company called Power Calls. And like I mentioned, a, a great store and outfitter called Final Flight. You don't like to leave home, Kelly. Is this forcing you to get no. get out there and, and find them? Yeah, it is. It, it does. I mean, you know, when unfortunately in our part of the country, you just you I, I mean it's very hard to freelance. You can't go and just drive around and see birds in an area and call because a, it would be rare to find them and B, if they are there, well, then that guy is planning on hunting his own farm. He developed it, you know, and it's just, it's just reality. You, you're not going to be able to knock on a door and get permission. It's just, it's just the nature we're at because those ducks are hitting that particular body of water for a reason. And it was built by a landowner that hunts. Um, and that's, you know, so that's just kind of, the nature of the beast but at the end of the day it's we become more efficient uh, our gear's gotten better our calling's gotten better our decoys have gotten better and it doesn't matter what brand you blow or you like it's just the truth uh, and i think at some point i don't know how long it can sustain to where we have to sometimes manage our resource a little differently and not put as much pressure on them whether you bounce around or you hunt different locations if you have the luxury of doing that but at some point, I, I do. I think I think 20 years from now, we'll look back on this conversation and you think, hey, maybe there's something there. I hope not. But I just it, this season of all seasons in my whole life, it's made me take a long look of of kind of how we hunt some of our farms. However, there are some locations, river hunting, this or that to where 
you're always hunting what we call traffic ducks. You're always hunting ducks from point A to point B, you know, and you can let it set for 30 days and you're never going to gain anything. You know, you're never going to let it build up. It's never. Um, so in that scenario, if you're always hunting traffic, you know, constant changing up, you may be hunting from the same location, but constant changing of, of decoy spreads, just something new and something fresh can sustain it. But uh, some places that are farms to where they're feeding on or whether it's a flooded agriculture field or something in those scenarios, man, you just, it can't sustain, you know, just pounding the ducks. They like to dart. Do you, when you start talking about those river spots and running that traffic back when you and I were competing against each other and traveling and forming our friendship, Barney Califf had some videos out there at the time of big Missouri yeah. wads of mallards, right? Do you think that still happens in those areas? Oh, we don't need to give that area I, I away, do. but do you, do you think it still happens? No. Yeah. I mean, and there are, there, and that's the thing, there are unique spots like that everywhere. I mean, everywhere in the country that you can still go and have good hunts, but at the end of the day, in a sense, you're chasing them. You're doing the time scouting. And to me, that's duck hunting. You're, you're putting the time of where the birds actually want to be. You slip in the next day or hours later, you know, un, under the skies of darkness and you set up and it's a surprise attack. That, that to me, that's duck hunting. What, what I'm getting at is the traditional spots like in Tennessee is, you know, you have a private farm, you build a private farm up, you build impoundments, you build a blind and that's sta a stationary blind. You hunt from that stationary line, stationary decoys. You're depending on the ducks just to fly by you like a deer walks by a certain trail in the rut. That's how a lot of duck hunting is done, at least in the state of Tennessee and, Kentucky, you know, in the Mid-South. That's just a fact. Um, the further elsewhere you get different parts of the country, there's a lot more chasing. There's a lot more scouting. And I'm not saying there's not scouting in Tennessee. That's not an absolute statement. But as a general rule, you know, Tennessee's known for stepping in a big duck blind and this and that. And it's just, that's just, it's just the way it is. Uh, and however, when the ducks are flying, man, you can have great hunts, you know, and, and, and it's a good time. It's a social event. You cook for people and all that. I'm just concerned from a long-term standpoint, and I wish I knew the answer. I, it's just from a long-term standpoint, I don't know how long that model can sustain. Keep having good hunts because you're just, at some point, the ducks just become nocturnal and they don't want to leave the refuge because they're constantly being harassed when they're going from point A to point B. It's just a different, it's a different dynamic. In my opinion, Powers, you're kind of a rarity, meaning that you you grew up in a duck heavy location, a duck rich environment, but you weren't too far from very, very strong Canada goose hunting, whether it was Southern Illinois, you, you were very tight with the late great Tim Grounds that we talked about on this podcast before you've traveled the world, including Canada hunting Canada geese, most Southern men or mid Southern men, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi Delta really aren't Canada goose hunters. So is there an opportunity for the Canada goose to save a season that you see? Was the Canada goose hunting good in places to where you knew it should be good? Did you get in on some unbelievable flocks of Canada geese working a dry field spread or a water spread? No. Wow. Short answer, no. And that's, wow. I mean, it's, it's an easy answer. And that's what's alarming is because, listen, you know, the, the Canada goose migration in the Mississippi flyway is a story in itself and a it's a very sad tragedy in a sense you know crab orchard horseshoe lake those traditional areas that would winter 
you know, I mean, up to three, four hundred thousand, half a million birds, it's over. I mean, there I looked at the count and this is awful, but a friend of mine texts me, you know, around like last week, and of course we're in, in the month of February, and and now we're recording this, but you know, refuge was we had more on one of our private farms of residents here in Tennessee than what they had on the whole refuge. Like, it's just sad. Like how to, and, and for years I've, we've always thought it like, it's one thing to have that happen, but wait till it happens to our mallards and the, really the Arkansas, Tennessee boys, Mississippi boys, Louisiana boys, that's when they'll really, uh, uh, they'll have a, uh, an uproar and, and goodness, it's, it's sad. And, Here's the thing. Here's the thing that ought to be an eye opener to everybody. Throw out every everything. You know, ducks can become nocturnal, no doubt. You know that can that's hard to track a little bit. Uh, but and even even numbers sometimes on ducks on refuge. You know, it might be debatable. You may say, well, there's more on private farms or not on the refuges as much, so the counts are skewed. Okay, possibly. But the number one thing I can say, if you're a Mid-South duck hunter, explain to me the, the explosion of the speckle, the specks, white-fronted geese in central Missouri and central Illinois. When they're getting way above their counts in mid-December of specks than normal, and it's a trend over the last six, seven, eight, nine years, getting more and more and more, well, those, you know, it, it's common sense to me just with our mallards, that they're not wintering as farther south anymore. It's just not happening. Pressure, whatever you want to call it, that is, I mean, that is a, we understand the mallards is one dynamic of it. We can look at our mallard counts and you can see, hey, they're just not migrating as further south anymore. That's one thing. But our specs, our specs always would winter in, 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 you know, southern Louisiana. That's where they're going. Arkansas, that area. But when you're seeing an explosion of numbers and speck hunting in central Illinois, central Missouri, you know, normally they just wouldn't have that uh, that kind of numbers, especially mid-December. But when you read the counts and the, the biologist reports, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's an asterisk there. They're 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 more and more seeing, and that's just you know, I think it's it it makes sense with every other species of ducks that we're hunting. So is is it is the short answer a combination of weather patterns and very very mild winters mixed with the flooded corn outburst in the in the northern part of the country mixed with refuges Kelly is those three the main combining factors that are keeping a migratory bird from getting to Louisiana when traditionally he or she would Yeah I, I think I, I'm not the kind of guy to say oh too many people are flooding corn well that's I mean listen they don't Unless they've got, it's impossible. When it gets down below, I mean, 20 degrees, unless you have a hot water discharge, I'm not talking ice blasters or any kind of electrical propulsion, it's going to freeze. You got to have stinking some kind of hot, you're talking about a, a power plant, a nuclear power plant or a, a warm water discharge power plant, something to keep that from freezing. So just because somebody floods corn in central Illinois, it's eventually going to freeze. There's, I mean, there's only so much you can do when it gets down and you look at their weather, their air temperatures, it's going to freeze. However, if that duck can fly to a power plant lake and anybody just get on Google Earth, go up the Illinois River Valley and just start looking, you'll see a little smokestack and you'll see a little zigzag line, the intake, and you'll see the discharge, you know, from here all the way to Chicago. 
the amount of power plants that use water to cool their engines, and then they're discharging that water at a warmer temperature than what it was intaked. Well, eventually they got, you know, like at, at Braidwood, you know, when, when Chicago gets cold, where are all the geese go? They go to the power, the nuclear power plant lake at Braidwood, just south of Chicago, every Canada goose in, in four counties just pile up there. It'll never freeze. It's not going to freeze. And then they can get a foot of snow if they fly out to the field and there's, you know, with no-till farming is another contributing factor. And this, I don't know if we, we went through this before, but I'll go through it briefly, you know. The, the surge of power plants and warm water discharge, the no-till farming when the farmers in the fall normally would disc up their fields and preparing it for the spring planting, now they don't touch it. So they leave that corn stubble standing. If there's any excess grain that come out of the back of the combine, now it's just laying on top of the ground, okay? So now you got excess feed that's available for them and you got open water that'll never freeze. Then if we have the warm weather, to where you're not getting at least 10 inches of snow on the ground to where that goose or duck can't nose in and get that accessible feed. And, and we're not getting the snow amounts historically in the month of December like we used to. So when you don't get that, now that bird has, you know, fields to feed in, less snow to, to, to obstruct them to get to the food source. The fields aren't being turned under. They constantly have open water source at some of these cooling lakes, you know, and then from a Canada goose aspect, the reintroduction of the giant Canada goose, especially in areas like Chicago, which is straight up the flyway for us, you know, when, when you have our migratory goose, and this, this has been going on for 20 years, a so-and-so migratory goose that comes out of James Bay, he flies over a million of his buddies that look like him, talk like him, act like him. He thinks they're, his, they're him, but technically they're a different subspecies of the Canada goose. When they intermingle with them, when it gets cold, those giants and residents they're genetically designed not to migrate and they're used to the harsh weather you know so when it you have a cold snap and a snowfall or whatever it is they go to the warm water discharge plant they're training the migratory geese of where to go you know the weed die off the strong survive spring comes they fly back to the nesting grounds you can see where this is evolving they're they never have a reason to go any farther south unless it's legitimately life-threatening um, and we just don't see those type of weather events. So all in all, there's a lot of contributing factors there. That, to my opinion, I think that's exactly where we're at on our Canada geese. I don't think you see that as much in the Mississippi flyway is because when you go up into Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, you don't have a lot of those urban areas to where you're getting warm water discharge, and nor do you have a river system that's that's using a lot of cooling, you know, from a lot of industrial standpoints. So, um I think you have some of that that, that kind of can go on, but it's just a disturbing trend that I think a lot of it's man-made. Um, and, and, but I don't, I don't know the answer to, to, to combat it other than travel. Well, without giving away too much Kelly powers, if you could tell somebody a piece of advice on where to go to have a successful Canada goose hunt, or if somebody called the store and says, hey, I'm looking to go on a can of goose hunt. Can you recommend an outfitter or a location in the country? Where would you send them right now? Canada doesn't count. You know, that's a good question. I mean, oh, man, come on. <laughs> uh, um, no, Canada is a bucket list. And, you know, they're different. You know, this there's there's places in Canada. People ask me, hey, I want to go to Canada. First thing I ask them, what do you want to shoot? You want to shoot big geese or little geese? Because it's a difference. I mean, you go to 
some parts of the country, you're never going to shoot a big honker, you know, and you're going to get, get those, you know how it is. Um, and I ask them those things and I would ask them the same thing here. If they want to shoot a Canada goose, you know, really Chicago, Northern Chicago area is still strong. Uh, they'll still have some good early season stuff, you know, and, and granted it's mild and they'll get a lot of early migrators that come through. Um, you can still have good hunting. Rochester, Minnesota is, I, I mean, highly pressured, um, but it breeds very good goose hunters. That area right there, Fargo, same deal. Uh, you know, Rochester, that Minneapolis area, there's a lot of good goose hunting in there. And there's some pretty good goose hunters and there's some good friends of ours too, you know, uh, that you can happen. But, you know, also too, sometimes you got to think outside the box and go where there's less pressure. You know, the places I mentioned are great hunting, great hunters, but there also is a lot of pressure and they'll admit to that. You know, upstate New York, there's good hunting out West, Montana, good hunting. I mean, it doesn't find you a good outfitter that's reputable, um, that has good gear and, and just start researching that. And I, I mean, that's just, that's probably where you can get your best quality hunting. And, and I recommend going through an outfitter just because some of these places you can freelance, but nine times out of 10, if you have a little inside track on an outfitter, sometimes you'll end up spending less than trying to knock on doors and doing it yourself. And I mean, it's just, it's a struggle. So are you in so much, in so many words, Kelly Powers telling me that there is no problem or no reason not to hunt with an outfitter, a qualified outfitter? It doesn't mean that you're not a good hunter, right? They just take a lot of the guesswork out, right? Is it, is it okay to go and learn from them? Is it okay to go on a, a guided hunt? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, if I'm going hunting, I mean, at the end of the day, at my age, like, I, I mean, granted, I want to, I think I'll go and I know the place to go, but sometimes it's okay to just not have to worry about putting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And, and if you're going for a five-day trip and you're doing it yourself, you may get two or three days of good hunting out of that. Where if you were the outfitter, you may get five days of good hunting. So you have to, you have to, you know, analyze your time and what that's worth. And, and, and that, because at the end of the day, the time spent scouting is more important than any type of calling or decoys that you're carrying with you. And, and unless you're there weeks before you arrive or before you're going to hunt, it's hard to put the pieces of the puzzle together on a freelance trip and and me and you both traveled travel the world and you do this and me and I, and I dare to say it's the same for you as well no matter where i go if i'm freelance my better hunting is on the tail end of my trip than it is when i get there because when i get there we'll have a couple good hunts early on but get better until i put all the pieces of the puzzle together and start narrowing in on patterns and, and trends and tendencies of where the birds are at and what's going on and every year it changes every day it changes but the more you're there you can kind of forecast those trends and be in the right spot and for me it doesn't happen until later on in the trip and i think most guys at freelance will back that up to say yeah you know it's better towards the end so it, it's one of those things you analyze it. I mean, if there's a good reputable outfitter there uh, and you get to know well, then sometimes it may be better, you know, more money better spent to go with him, uh, support the local business and, and, and make a good friend out of it and, and kind of go that route. Most people know you as a short read Canada goose caller. You hunt ducks a lot where you live in Tennessee. You've also been very, very 
I guess, successful on stage with a duck call, uh, mainly meat calling, um, real duck calling, you know, not necessarily Main Street Stuttgart style with the big hail calls at the beginning and all of that, but mostly meat duck. Um, I've competed against you in meat duck all the way back in like 2002, 2003, we were competing against each other in meat duck as well as goose. Kelly, do do you blow a duck call a lot when you hunt? You're in places where you're hunting traffic ducks sometimes, but you also are hunting managed farms like we talked about earlier. It's easy to pick up a goose call and run it as far as when you when you become very proficient with it and you can pick it up and you can make some noise and keep Canada geese interested. Is it more important not to call or knowing when to call with mallard ducks as opposed to Canada geese or is it about the same for both? Uh, probably about the same for both. I mean, the most important thing that I would say out of all of this, it's more important on when to call and, and how to call or it, more important than when to call than how do you sound. Um, and, and, and I mean, to a certain degree, I'm not saying go just be crazy on the call, you know, but, but you just have to read birds, you know, and there's, there's just, you have to read them knowing when to call because man, if a duck's, if they're coming to you, you know, it, and it's, it's a big pet peeve of mine on, on things, the way people call hitting ducks at the wrong time, for example, and every location you hunt is different. Every, it doesn't matter where you're at. And, and truthfully, Guys that hunt a one setup every day for every day of duck season and for years, you still learn things after so many years. That little that tree that's in front of us, just to the left, you know, if it's a west northwest wind, you need to let them get to the right side of it before you hit them. Like all those little intricate details, you don't find out of just pulling up to a spot and hunting today. You may not find that out till three years later. Like it's just you, you, if we would do a better job of, of recording data on west northwest winds exactly the exact you know what i mean if you had more of a analytical approach to it kind of like you know the nfl does right now on what plays to call and trends and tendencies like if we were to analyze that i think it would shorten the learning curve but no matter where you set up um everything acts a little different you know with the wind and how they go and it drives me crazy of people hitting ducks at the wrong time like man when they're if you got a big tree or an obstacle, especially if you're in a timber hole and there's a tall tree that they need to skirt around, you know, if they need to go to the right side of it and they're flying straight away from you and they're starting to lean left, don't dare hit the call. If you even breathe into that call and they're starting to lean left, of course, they're going to swing back to the left. And you know already because of previous trends, if they're on the left side of the hole, they're not going to finish right, you know, especially of how the wind is. So if they're going away from you and they're just slightly leaning left, like, Nobody better even call. But as soon as that you see one duck in there that turns his head to the right, if you capitalize on that opportunity, then you've got all the ducks set up in a format and in a position to where they can actually finish. And and at the end of the day, if you were to analyze every flock of ducks that you're working and realize that every time they fly over you is a missed opportunity, okay? You've only got three, four passes. Whatever that number is, if you always think of that mentality, you, you try to capitalize on every opportunity, if that makes sense. Because only so many times they're going to fly over you and they're gone. So if if you try to minimize those and take advantage of that and kind of have that mindset, you know, you you what you do is you train yourself not to just blow the call, just to blow the call, just hear yourself calling. And so many people just like to hear their self calling. 
and not thinking, okay, those ducks have already passed me two times. Probably only got one or two more times. When they go over my head, I better be watching them because I better make this count, you know, and that's the mentality that I'm always in. It's just kind of ingrained in my mind of, you know, that, and it, it goes back to whoever's calling in your group or in your hunting party, you, you got to have one pit boss. He's the guy that's leading the calling. And as those ducks go over your head and it's silent, nobody better ever hit a call until that person calls, because that's the guy that should be watching for those trends and those tendencies, you know, and, and however they're going to finish, it's all about putting them in that position to where they can finish into your setup. And if they're starting to swing left and it's going to be with a crosswind and that, you know, they can't finish that way. Well then don't call at them to put them in that location. Wait till they get it right to when you can be in a position that you know that they're going to land. So when you said a few minutes ago that some of your best trips, the tail end of them are your better hunts because you figure out the roost, the loafs, the patterning, um, you know, what time of day, the weather, the forecast, you might have it figured out a little bit by then. I assume that calling is part of this, Kelly, and where I'm going with that is if you leave your house in Tennessee and you and Kyle and the crew go up to, let's say, Montana and you're hunting a buckbrush hole in Montana in December, can you, if if you can call mallard ducks in Tennessee, can you call them in Montana? No problem. Or does it take you a couple of days to figure out where those trees are and those bushes and those embankments or something that's going to change that flight pattern to the duck or the way they set up into your spread? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can, I mean, be effective anywhere and any hunter can do that. You just, the, the main thing is, is in the back of your mind, it's, it baffles me about how many waterfowl hunters just don't know insulate the wind direction. Like, and I, I don't know, I guess it's just something, you know, the more you do it and you're just ingrained into where I constantly know exactly where they're going to finish right here today. It's just, you don't even guess. Like you just know, you can feel it coming off your right shoulder or the wind right here is where they're going to be. Not here, right here. You know, you know that just because you're standing up out of the blind. Uh, and it kind of baffles me about how hunters, it just doesn't register to them. You know, it doesn't come into play. But for me, I know, all right, if they're going to finish right here, that means they have to set up somewhere just a little to the left of that location as they're swinging in. So they're probably not going to swing out to the right side. I need to swing out to the left side. All that information just processes real quick, no matter where you're at in the country. If you're in a timber hoe or a buckbrush slough in Montana, then what comes into play is, okay, what obstacles downwind are going to prevent that duck or goose from coming into my spread? Is it a tree? Is it tall buckbrush? Is it dry ground? You know, that's why you just kind of look at all those things and you see where you want the ducks to, to finish. And you're in a sense, it's like you're trying to land a plane. Where's my runway going to be? That's where they need to call to where they can get to where they have that long approach to come in. And that's just, it's just seeing those little details. And, and for us here, when you're hunting a spot every single day for all season long, if you're, you know, a permanent spread, you still see trends. And, and a lot of that's just slight wind changes. I mean, these are very intricate details. And I know your timber hunters in Arkansas will vouch for this. You know, you don't really know those things until you really spent, I mean, just days and days and days hunting the same exact location under different conditions and not just wind conditions, water. You know, when you, every inch of water changes everything. I hunt a, I hunt on the river a lot and, you know, you get an inch more water or two or, or a foot of water. Goodness, the flyways change. You know, they may be crossing you today. Tomorrow, they're half a mile north of you crossing. And the only difference is an inch higher of water. Well, they're just following the water line. You know, all that little stuff is just different details that come in to where 
you'd give anything to have a guy just recording all this data from an analytical approach. And then, you know, five years from now, you start looking at five years of data. You can say, okay, this is exactly what they're going to do today because we have this much data to back it up. But right now that obviously doesn't exist. And we're all just processing in our minds and, and in our memory bank and going from there. But if you hunt a spot every day, you know, you, the guys that do that will, they'll appreciate, you know, they, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's just things change. And I love going into a spot and hunting different areas with guys I've never hunted before that they hunted every day. And, and they'll tell you, yep, you see them big trees over there, generally on a wind, they're going to swing to the right side of them. You know, and if, if the wind's coming right at them, they got to go left or right of it, but they finish better if they go right of it, you know, cause you'll have those times. And there's some spots on private farms that we have some of them big trees that I still want to go up. I want to climb them and top them just to, so it's no, no longer an obstacle, you know, where they can get in there a little quicker on those West Northwest wind days. But that goes into changing kind of the topography of the, your surroundings of where you hunt. But a lot of that's two private farms, you know, where you can go in and, and do those things. But um, all in all, just be aware of all those, you know, it's, there's so much data that is passing throughout the hunt just be aware of what's going on and try to remember as much as you can for the next time you're there. How do you apply that to your decoys? When you're hunting a spot like a private farm, like you're talking, I would assume you're probably not picking your decoys up every day and putting them away. You probably have a spread, but you do change them depending on that wind. You're going to, you're going to open up a hole here or there potentially. But what do you tell somebody that comes into final flight, Kelly Powers and says, what do I need? Like when you go to Montana, you don't carry a hundred dozen floating mallard decoys, do you? I mean, what, how do you process, how do you process the decoy part of the game? So, I mean, visibility is key. You know, I'm a big fan of the, the large size battleships that, you know, the great big decoys. Um, and, and granted you can go more numbers with a smaller decoy, but you know, when a duck can see a decoy at a higher altitude, you know, they'll have tunnel vision a lot of times. No matter you've seen it before, they don't, they won't look at anything else because that's what they saw first, you know, and they can't see that if you're running small size decoys. So I like the biggest decoy you can get in the minute, as many as you can afford. That's, you know, that way they can see you at farther distances. And once they start pitching, well, then you got them. If they're not pitching and they're not flying over, you're not going to have a chance. You know, so whatever you can get them to start pitching, whether it's more flashers, whether it's whatever it is, you know, larger size decoy is there from a, from a decoy standpoint and how you set up. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of sunlight. Sunlight is key, uh, you know, for years and still people, you know, it's common trend to set up in the shadows and the shade just because you can hide easier and use the natural shadows that are there. And that is true. You can hide easier. The drawback of setting up on the east side of the hoe, number one, in the Mid-South predominantly, you always have westerly winds, southwest, west, northwest. Constantly, ducks are going to be coming in from behind me, okay? Number two, if you set up on the east side of the hoe, just about majority of my decoys that are close are not visible because, you know, so many times guys will say, hey, I hunt this timber hoe, but we don't really start killing them in there until after 8, 30, 9 o'clock. Well, it has nothing to do with the hoe. It's a visibility issue. It's it's something is obstructing sunlight penetrating that water inside the hoe before nine o'clock. So it, it could be a tall tree line edge on the east side of the hoe, whatever. So if your water's not visible, or more importantly, if your decoys aren't visible, you might as well just leave them in the boat. If they can't see the decoys, 
you know, you, you're not going to, I mean, they're just coming to the call in a lot of sense. And it's a lot of reasons too. your timber hunters, you know, they'll go in with just a few decoys and they'll kip water, you know, and, and a lot of that, especially on a sunny day, those ducks can hear the water and they can see the, the motion of the water. They see that before they could ever see a decoy because of the natural shadows that are on the water. So me personally, I like to go the contrary. I like to set up on the west side of the hoe. Now, granted, I want to set up by the way my wind is first and foremost. But generally, if I'm setting up a permanent spread that I'm going to hunt it day in, day out, by setting up on the west side of the hoe, now south winds, southwest winds, west winds, northwest winds, north wind, you know, I'm pretty good unless I have an east wind, which is very rare in this part of the country. So by doing that, my wind's always going to be great. They're, I'm going to be shooting them in my face or I'm going to have a crossing wind. Then number two, the sunlight is always going to be shining on my decoys. If the sun's out, every decoy I have will be in the sunlight to be visible. Um, and when you put that combination together, it's, it's great. The drawback of that, well, they can see the hunters easier. Well, that's something I feel like I can control. I can control how I'm concealed. You know, I can't control the sun and where it shines, but I can control how my blind is brushed or my hide is set up. So we just go overboard and try to be as concealed as best we can, be in the right position to finish ducks uh, with the winds at our back and then, and then I, and the sunlight shining on our decoys. And it seems to be our, our best prescription. When you said that one of your pet peeves is the, the timing of the callers in the blind and how it will literally drive you crazy. And I agree comes from experience. Yeah. I get that, but talk to me about this. What about the anxiety and pure, just freaking out that you see your witness with other hunters when the ducks don't work, when the sun's oh. not up, and you're like we got to move the decoy spread, we got to do this. They're not, I'm like, guys, we got to get light. It's got to get bright. We got the water doesn't look right right now. The decoys don't look right now. Let's let the sun do its job, right? That's absolutely. It's, it's like and there are things you can control and things. It is a panic, and there's things you control and things you can't. You know, and I'm a huge fan of sunlight. I don't care where you are in the country. You know, I, now granted, if I'm out in a, a wide open field, you know, you may not see the birds fly out as much because they like to get their feet muddy. And if it rains, you know, you're going to generally, at least this part of the area, you have more success. But I love sunlight, man. It just, it, it makes natural shadows. It makes decoys pop. They can see ripple on the water. It's just all of the above. I mean, I just, it's, it's just a, it, that's just my favorite style to hunt, you know, and from a calling standpoint, you know, it's just, it, it's just different things of, of just reading them and, and not over calling. And, and, and at, at the end of the day, it, it's not how you sound. And I'll have some guys that'll come in there that are great callers and, and I'll just say, Hey, hit them. Like, I'm not going to call. Just don't call. Whoop, don't call. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, he's getting ready to turn right. Get ready. Get ready. Get ready. Boom. Hit it right now. Right now. Boom. And as soon as they hit it, it like it breaks the duck's back. And it doesn't really matter how good that caller sounded. He just hit him at the right opportune time. And now that duck is in a position to where he could finish into our setup. If he hit that duck too early, that duck would have swung left, would not be in a position to finish that swing. Now we lost a swing and we got to start the whole process over again. And in the back of my mind, like I tell, would tell him, you've only got so many swings you're going to give you. Make every single one of them count. Don't hit a duck or call on a duck when it's going to put them in a position to where they cannot finish. And just always think about that mindset. And then, you know, so it's not necessarily how you sound. It's just when you're calling and when you're hitting them. 
But one thing is for sure that you're you're going to get a way better reaction when there's brightness and color and shine on the water, yeah. right? That's uh, everything. No doubt. It's everything. I mean, not that it puts you in a better mood. I, I don't, I mean, I love hunting in the rain out in the field. You know, they, they, they like to go out there and especially in a pit or if you're in a layout blind or whatever kind of setup you're in, but just puts me in a better mood when I'm not, pour, when it's not pouring down raining and it's pretty sun out and, and uh, love to see that, you know, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sunlight is key for, for me, especially in most of your timber hunters will vouch for that as well. Oh, you could hide an army in trees if it's sunny. If it's gray or an, a high oh. dome, you might as well pack it in. I mean, I'm not saying you ain't going to get a couple of them, but they're not going to act like ducks. Keith Allen was the best at explaining it is like this. They just don't act like ducks when it's not sunny. <laughs> it's they don't. Like, they don't. And, Keith, and Brother Keith, man, I love that guy to death, man. Yeah, he, he does it. You know, he's another guy, too, that – and he told me years ago, he's like, man, I would go in and, and we'll set up just – they'll literally walk in with no decoys in some spots that are hunting public and they'll kick water. And it goes back to that coming to the sound and coming to that water kicking, you know, with the shit, with the, especially the sunlight and the, and the shadows, a lot of times you, you can't see the decoys anyway, you know, and, and, and Keith told me that, you know, and, and, and I, I, I firmly agree with that. Just, I mean, he would, you know, not even, not even necessarily have as many decoys in that scenario um, and have success. I've hunted rainy, I've hunted several locations, including rainy breaks and Mingo and uh, some places with Keith with no decoys and just, and learned from him that the, the, the slapping your, you know, your thigh or kicking the water. I always thought, well, that water's making the decoys move in a flash. He's like, no, nah, that's the sound ducks make when they're in the woods. Yeah. How many times too, and answer this and, and you'll understand, you know, we so overthink things. And even walking through the spread and looking at, at things from a from a human point of view, when we're you know when you're looking straight out at the water, looking at decoys and how things look, and and now with with drone technology and being able to fly above spreads even in off season and look at things, analyze things from a bird's eye point of view, like in my opinion, we overthink so much because how many times do you get out there? If you're in a boat and you're motoring around and throwing up water and you look back and there's ducks just knotted right on top of you and you're out there in the middle of the boat, but they see that ripple and it's activity in the back of their mind, in my opinion, they ha they don't think it's a hunter at all. It's just something moving and they think, well, it has to be ducks because it's water. It's flooded timber, it's a flooded field, whatever. So it has to be ducks. You know, they're not processing that information that quick that, oh, it's a trap. That's actually a guy in a, in a boat. Right. You know, and so many times I think we under, we we overthink our decoy spreads, especially when it comes to motion. Like for me, I want as much ripple as I can get, like not a, not too much when they're trying to finish over it. But like as they're banking, like I want as much like I mean, I want it like an ocean out there where, where I'm kicking up as much ripple. That way, when they turn back, they can they can, you know, everything looks to life. And not only that. You know, a decoy on slick water disappears. It's almost a mirror effect. A decoy on rippled water has contrast. Um, and, and that's no matter where you are in the world, that's, you know, if you're looking down and it's slick water, they just disappear. If it's got ripple, it's got some contrast and it makes that decoy stand up, which is why whether any type of motion decoy you use or jerk cord, whatever, the more ripple you got, generally the better they're going to finish. You got to, you got to move. You got to have movement. You got to have a jerk string. You have, it's not, I, you know, I, I, I hunt over spinning wings. We work with Mojo. I love Mr. Terry Demon. And 
But without ripples on the water, a mojo can only do so much to get in their attention. When they get close and they're starting to yeah. dissect that spread, um, you know, that ripple is everything. That ch- Jim Ronquist taught me this in, an, in a, in a, it was, remember back in the day when we would do the, the Avery, Avery team waterfowl question and answer deals, the, the, all of that stuff. Well, Jim taught me about chocolate milk and about how important it is to stir up the sediments and that get that water looking mucky and chocolate milk, right? Because ducks are active. They're always moving. Even when they're sleeping, they're kicking their feet a little bit, right? So they're, they're always churning something up and that water's Absolutely. never clear. Yep. If you, you know, we would scout some of our farms, especially on ducks that are nocturnal, you know, of, of, and never see a duck, but know we're holding ducks just because of the color of the water. We'll get out there and the sun will come up and I'll start, we don't jump a duck up going in, but you start looking out there and one section of the farm, the mud, the water's all muddy. Well, you know, that just didn't happen overnight. I mean, that just didn't happen miraculously. You know, that's where the ducks were sitting that night before or that something come through and, 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 you know, granted in, in, in shallow water impoundments, water that's 18 inches or less, you know, ducks are, are they're, especially mallards, I mean, they're dabbling ducks. They're, they're going down, they're feeding, they're churning up mud. It turns that water muddy. But more importantly, you know, yes, it, it, it creates a natural environment. Uh, but more importantly, a decoy on muddy water has contrast. A decoy on slick water that's dark in color disappears. You know, that decoy on top of that muddy water jumps out from a long distance. So a piece of advice would be, don't be afraid to get out and run your dog through them or to walk through them yourself and get it set, you know, get it muckied up a little bit, right? Yep. Yeah. So yeah, what we do, like if, if the, when we get a break in the action every morning, you know, we'll get, we'll run a boat in the decoys. We actually have boat lanes that we'll run and churn up mud. Now on our private farms, when we harvest, like when we go in and harvest the crops, whatever we have, you know, we will run a disc through areas where we're going to hunt. And the reason it is, is because by running that plow through that ground, now when we put water on top of it, uh, it's easier for us to churn up mud. So whether walking through it, a dog or whatever, I don't have that, you know, where it feels like concrete under where I'm walking. It's more of a softer cushion. I drag my feet. I can churn up mud easier. It makes my decoy stand up, stand up and pop better. So we'll, what we'll do is wherever we're hunting, we'll run, run the disc down and churn up some of that dirt. That way, when we flood it two months later, you know, it's got, it, it makes it easier to muddy up our decoys. I, I want one more qu- answer real quick, Kelly, before I move into the ending of this, which we're going to talk about something that occurred in your, your neck of the woods with people you knew um, that kind of shook up the water, big time shook up the waterfowl industry. But when you made a comment earlier about river hunting, hunting traffic, and, and then you kind of compared it, or you were, you were talking also in the same sentence and breath about management. If there's those ducks in November, you're going to be hunting in January. You're not going to shoot in to a huge flock and educate them all. But is your mindset that if you're running traffic on traffic days, though, when you get a big wad in there and I'm talking one of those, what Jim Ronquest, Jimbo calls a Mondo wad. Are you shooting into a Mondo wad on a traffic day just because you're not mad at him? I get that, but that's hunting, right? Or how do you think of that? Historically, historically, no, I haven't. Historically, we have, we have had some of them big groups get in there and, and, and I mean, that's obviously personal preference and I don't knock anybody for doing that. It's just, there were times that I know one spot that I grew up hunting, you know, and this back when I was a kid, we probably, I don't know, it's 500,000 birds that come in and it was just a, and granted this is a private farm and it's not on a, 
a, a big flyway. I mean, so this was kind of very abnormal. But man, the autumn come in finished, and and we even looked at each other and just said, guys, this is as they were working, like. And finally, my, me or my brother, one of us said, hey, look, no matter what happens, we are not going to shoot. Let's just sit back and enjoy this, you know. And and to me, Grant, I was a little kid, but it was a, it was kind of a life lesson. It's not about pulling the trigger. Let's get them in here, get them to finish, you know. And 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 I, I mean, here I am, twenty years later, talking about it, you know. And we never even fired a shot into them. But at the end of the day, as as they kind of go off, I realize, well that flock's going to disperse and they're not going to be as big anymore, but somebody else's, they're not as educated. You know, now our, our private farms that we try to hold birds on never this year alone, we had right before shooting time, you know, we were there, goodness, we were there probably in the blind 20 minutes before shooting time. And we're sitting back drinking coffee and the field's just filling up, you know, we're waiting on, on legal shooting time. Well, when legal shooting time got, you know, there were so many ducks on the water you know, just right outside of range. And then we had ducks that were landing in the decoys. And I just told the guys that we're not going to shoot. Like nobody just, that's not even going to happen. Let me get out and walk them off. So I just got out of the blind and kind of waited out, let some pick up. Because at the end of the day, as they went, went to the different parts of the farm and dispersed, then they started nickel and diamond and coming back. And it, it you know, it made sense. I just, I'm not going to shoot into them and educate that many ducks because as soon as you shoot, you know, if you start them enough, they're going to, they could leave the whole county. They could leave the whole area and get up to a migrating height and, and leave. So that's just, we just don't do that. I try to manage that a little better. Same mindset on a traffic day on the Mississippi or on the Illinois, you're going to, you're going to let those birds go if it's a 500 wad. Uh, you know, it I'm not going to say I'm going to do it every time. And then we're hunting together and we just, we just, uh, crack into them. But on a traffic day on a river scenario coming out of the North, you know, that's probably a little different. You know, those ducks, you know, the back of your mind, you know, the weather conditions and they've been flying that far, you know, Hey, have fun. I mean, that's what it's about. If you're sitting on a private farm and you're trying to manage that resource and want them to stay there, you know, that's a little different. Uh, but at the end of the day, sometimes those river spots, especially if it's current, those ducks aren't going to stay there all the time. You know, they're just coming in for a drink and they're, they're gone, you know? Um, so those scenario, I mean, every, every spot's different and I don't blame anybody for doing it. Like I say, we've all done it and there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, it's hunting as long as it's done within legal means, you know, do that. It's just, you know, on private farms and trying to manage them. I try not to generally on some of them big flocks of just shooting into them because, you know, these ducks I, I want to hold all year. I take a lot of probably the biggest complaint about people hunting with me when we're filming Kelly is not calling the shot. It's getting caught up in that, ma- <laughs> that getting caught up in that majesty, right? Me too. They're landing all around yeah. me and I'm just like, man, this is, this is awesome. So I'm with you on it. It's just that, you know, it's, there's different mindsets. If you're managing ducks or if it's one of those migrator days where that you might not necessarily see those same ducks tomorrow, they're up and down the flyway, you know, they're gone tomorrow, South 200 miles, you know, you just kind of, you, I guess you're educating them for the next hunters, or you might be traveling south yourself later on in the season. But man, it's hard not to shoot them. It's hard. It's hard not to, right? But so, Kelly, yeah. in your area, is there truth to the story now? Like, there's always been rumors since this happened. I'm referring to the incident at Real Foot. Is there a hundred percent? solid truth to what happened, why it happened, how it happened. Um, 
Is it true that the two of the people involved that are deceased now worked for you at Final Flight? I wanted to get the story from you because I I live so far from Tennessee, but it, I mean, it hit the air la- the airwaves right away. What's the truth? Do you know? Yeah. So, and, and I want to start off saying this: that there is a, a um, there's an autopsy being done with the TBI, Tennessee Bureau of Investigation. It's it's our state's FBI or our our state police. You know, it's called the TBI here. Um, and so everything I say is very preliminary and I am not an investigator. And the last thing I want to do is go into speculation. So everything I'm going to tell you is publicly available information that's been released uh, from the district attorney uh, and so on. And that anybody can kind of read, because I'll tell you this, when, when the information first came out, you know, and, and granted one chance was one of our store employees and I'll go into the details in a minute. First thing I'll caution our staff and our friends is like, guys, we don't know what happened. No, nobody does. Fortunately for us, we have great investigators, great police departments. They're going to get to the bottom of it. At the end of the day, lives were lost over duck hunting. And no matter where you are in the country, it's a bad look over a duck. No matter what happened, no matter who's at fault, we don't know. So I, I say all that to kind of say some of the preliminary results um, and and as the time that we're doing this, they have you know we haven't gotten the final autopsy you know back, um, but from the from the district attorney is was quoted as saying you know unless something comes out that's just crazy unforeseen in the autopsy, this case is pretty much closed shut. So what seemed to happen is you know roof it like blinds are there's blinds that are close together. And there's grandfather blinds that meaning, you know, years ago, people that owned property next to Real Foot Lake were kind of grandfathered status into certain blind locations. Um, and and one particular blind was grandfathered. Another blind that was close by is what we call a draw blind. So it's a yearly draw that you get. You get the use of the blind for the full season. Um, and just like no matter where you go in, in, in the world, there's competition. And unfortunately, with Real Foot, a lot of those blinds and, and listen, a lot of those guys are close friends of mine. And unfortunately, there's, a, you know, just because it was on real foot, it kind of gives them a, a bad look. But listen, there's some fine people on real foot lake and there's some fine duck hunters, you know, and, and they shouldn't get caught up in a, a complete random freak accident that everybody's that way, you know. Uh, but there are a lot of blinds that are close together. And when you put that many hunters in that close proximity to each other, it creates competition. I don't care where you are in the world. And at the end of the day, it's not duck hunting, in my opinion. Duck hunting doesn't have to be that way. If we all could spread out a little more, we're all going to have better hunting. It's just it's just reality. And you're not going to have the com- competition and all that. Um, so what it seemed like is is the, the gentleman that deceased, and I'm not, I won't mention any names, but um, he was, was motored over into the blind that, uh, Chance Black and Zach Grooms were in, um, and to all indications, from from what I've heard, wanted to hunt with them. Um, and there were reports that he was suffering from dementia. I, I don't know that. There were some. There's some different reports, and hopefully this will come out in the in the autopsy findings and all that. But from there, uh, he shot him. And whether whether it was a dispute that happened over a duck. That was that they just shot into, but from everything I've heard, is they had no chance. It was a knock on the blind door, guy comes in, and it was just it's just a bad situation, you know. 
Um, and no matter how you look at it, it it's, you know, the, there were three individuals in that blind. Um, the, the shot to the third person was able to get the gun away from him and knock him out, the suspect out into the water. Uh, and he was able to get the, the, the two people, the two uh, Chance Black and Zach into the boat and take them to the boat ramp and to try to get them help. And when he looked back, the guy, the suspect was standing up. It was about waist deep water, uh, was standing up in the water. And that was the last time they saw him. Um, they found his body a day, two days later. Um, and it looked like by all indications, hypothermia, but you know, at the end of the day, lives were lost over a duck hunt. Um, Chance was, was one of our gun department managers. Um, and, uh, Zach was his, his friend and, and they, I don't know how many times actually chance has hunted this location. Um, and it, you know, he's one that, that, uh, and I know Zach's hunted a little more. I did talk to Jason, the guy that, that tried to rescue him and, you know, and I honestly was reluctant to kind of talk about this, but I can tell you from his standpoint, he, he shook up, you know, and, and he told me, and he, and he was an older gentleman and kind of a mentor to these two kids because they were, they were in their young twenties, you know, mid twenties. And, and like Jason said, you know, he kind of wants to clear his name and to all indications it, it has been, but the public perception, so many people raise questions and this and that. And like, I, I mean, everything I've heard is like, you know, he had heroic efforts of trying to save them. Um, and by seeing the reports that I've seen, it, it, I think the investigation kind of backs that up because he was cleared immediately with law enforcement. Um, and it seems like the story corroborates and all that. But staff that, you know, that at the end of the day, we don't know. The TBI will release a detailed report and a finding in their autopsies in, in the days to come. Um, and from there, you know, that'll hopefully give a little bit of closure. But what we want to do is, as a staff, and not only that, as a as duck hunters is, is to shed light on at the end of the day, no matter how bad the hunting is, no matter how mad you're upset at the guys hunting over there on the tree line that are maybe shooting your swing or all that it's over a duck or it's over a goose, you know, and I don't know any of that happened. I, I just don't know. I'm just stating a reality of being a lifelong duck hunter. We all get upset over certain things, but this ought to pause to where, all indications were that guy that was over there in that other spot, you know, he might've had some mental health issues that he couldn't control. And let's be honest, dementia is a, is deadly. It's, it's, it's hard to understand, but they can't control that. And whatever happens, you know, you, you don't know. I mean, that, I mean, granted the suspect it was, listen, he grew up in, in my hometown, just the town right next to mine in Martin, find a citizen, find a family as you could ask for. They had a hardware store. Um, and sometimes you can't control the mental state that dementia puts your, you just, you can't control that. And for him to going through that, if that's what he was going through and there, there's been some, some things that he was having some health issues, you know, and, and some things trigger. And so at the end of the day, like it, it just puts, puts into perspective that we're all just hunting. This is all a hobby. Nothing should get carried away that far. And, you know, for us, we look back and there's three lives lost. And, and not only that, even the suspect's family, now they have to live with this, you know, and, and, it's, and it's unfair for them. It's just, just we ask for thoughts and prayers for, for all of them. And, um, you know, it's just 
you talk about a tough time, but but I will say the bright side of things. You talk about uh, the hunting industry coming together. Um, we, you know, when things like that happen, I'm always like, okay, what can I do to help? You know, whether it's monetarily, whether you know, everybody's limited within their own means of doing whatever. You know, and and for us, it's like, well, we can help monetarily, but then what can we help spread the message about or whatever? Uh, Chance and Zach's hometown of Greenfield, Tennessee, they set up a GoFundMe, you know, uh, I'm sorry, they set up a, a, a fund at the local bank. Well, the, the bank president happens to be a friend of mine and, and, a, a, and went to college with my brothers, you know, and we reached out to him and said, hey, is there a way we can do this in electronic form? Um, and and so we kind of navigated through that. And just to help, we didn't want to steal their thunder. It was just ways to use our social media presence with Final Flight um, and push this out. So we started a GoFundMe page and and they just recently closed that and it raised close to $30,000 to be split amongst the two families, you know, and, and our goal was at the end of the day, like, listen, the family shouldn't have the burden of the funeral expenses in this situation. Um, so, so the, I mean, man, we got stuff from outfitters in Canada to, you know, I mean, if, if it doesn't tell you the the support of this industry, and here's one story, and I'll, I'll kind of, I'll, I want to name drop some people because they need to be recognized. But, you know, Final Flight, we're a, we're a, obviously a retail store and, and, and we sell sporting goods stuff. Now we're in Tennessee and, and, you know, we're a member of a buying group at NBS. Also a member of that buying group is Max Prairie Wings. Max is probably one of the largest, you know, waterfowl retailers in the industry. The week after that happened, Max provided lunch for our host staff, you know, Technically, you could say, well, we're competitors. We both sell, but we don't even think like they're our great big brother. You know, we're like tiny compared to them. But for them to recognize this and to provide lunch for our family, I mean, Marion and Chuck and the guy, like, holy cow, you want to talk about just, oh, great people. And 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 not just then, like it goes like businesses are doing this and different things and and reaching out to the the chance and Zach's family and doing different things like it really puts into perspective, like, you know, yeah, well, you may think we have a big industry, the hunting industry, but at the end of the day, we're still small and and everybody is here for each other. And I, I told our staff at the funeral, we all kind of sat around and 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 it, obviously, you know, and we kind of had some prayers and some thoughts. And I said, you know, we all, everybody grabbed a hand and I said, you know, look to your left and right, because some point, if you outlive them, the person on your left or right is not going to be there. And if that person on the right is not here, well, then that person on the left is what's going to get you through that tough time, you know? And if they're not there, well, then somebody else is going to get you through that tough time. I said, but don't forget your friends and your family uh, because that's what gets us through. And, you know, our business, Final Flight Outfitters, we always kind of use the, it's kind of, kind of corny, I guess, but we use the term, you know, faith, family, outdoors in that order, you know, FFO. And, and I, I just, we had an award one night and they asked me to say something. And honestly, it kind of come to me just like in five seconds. I'm like, well, what's final flight about? And I, I was like, well, really it's faith family outdoors. We're strong in faith. We're rooted in our family and we're all involved in the outdoors, you know, and, and we try to live our life that way. Um, if we stay grounded and we stay surrounded by good family and friends and we stay involved in the outdoors, it seems to get us through tough times like this. Um, and, and the outreach of support in the hunting industry has been phenomenal and it's definitely helped. I know I can definitely speak from the family's behalf, you know, what they've told me and uh, like they are, it, it is a, 
very good bright spot in a tragic situation. And, and that's all that means, means to us. Very well said, Kelly. Terrible. I mean, it's, it's the only, the only thing that ever that I, that I question. And it's hard to question something that happens like that, especially after listening to a man like you talk about it, but I've been to real foot and I know how competitive it is. And I've heard stories about blinds being burnt down because people are shooting swing ducks or dynamite set up in them. I've seen people stand up on their, on the roofs of their blind and yell at another blind from a 400 yards away. I've seen it out there, but is it just an assumption that there was swing ducks involved or did the guy, did the guy that did survive the older gentleman, the mentor, did he witness um, this guy angry or yelling back at them because they were shooting swing ducks. Cause if this man had dementia, he, it sounds like he kind of tricked him by being nice to get up in the blind to try to shoot him. But was, what was the main reason for that? Was there proof that there was swing from, duck shot? From, from what I understand. And now all this is just, and I'm going to, and I don't want to go into speculation, but there has been some time elapsed since this. And, you know, any day now we should have a, a report that comes out. Um, but what I'm going to, what I'm going to speculate you know, is and from what I have understand in preliminary reports is it's kind of been on ongoing of just just bitterness of a of a competitor close by. I don't necessarily think there was one instance and and even from ones that told me like, man, there was never there's never been any type of incidents or all that. Now granted, TBI report may come back and, and throw us for a spin. That is possible. You know, and I, I say that because I'm not an investigator and at, at all that. But it, it was I will say the day that this happened, it was pouring down raining. Uh, I mean, it was absolute. I mean, it was a, it was a, I mean, it rained like two or three inches and, and, uh, I don't think there was a lot of hunting going on is what I'm trying to say, you know, and, and he went to the blind by himself. You know, I've heard their speculation. A lot of this was premeditated, you know, but then again, I, I mean, goodness, I like say, I, it's crazy. You, you hate to say those things when you just don't know, you know what I mean? And, and I, I said the disclaimer on the front end, I'll say it on the back end. Uh, the, the TBI report will, will hopefully explain everything a little better. Uh, I don't know if it's going to make a difference because at the end of the day, there's, there's three lost lives, you know, and, and, and the suspect being one of them, you know, whatever he was going through, whatever happened, uh, it, it's definitely avoidable and something that we all can take a look back and say, you know, this is, it's, it's duck hunting. It can be dangerous. Things can happen, you know, and, and, uh, but all indications are from the preliminary report. And this is according to, to the district attorney that um, this case is pretty much close to being, you know, closed. Uh, and all indications were it was a murder. He motored over to the blind, uh, shot two individuals, um, and then he was knocked out of the blind. Gun was gotten from him. He was knocked out of the blind. That, you know, and that's where I've, I've gotten my information because, you know, speculating on different things that happen, you know, I haven't heard that of different sway, you know, but I'm I'm not involved in the investigation to say, you know, to say that other than reading the final reports or reading what the district attorney says in the paper and all that. Well, I want to it was Chance and Zach, right? Correct. Chance Black, Zach Grooms, um, you know, just I mean, goodness, mid-20s, life ahead of them. I mean, like I can go on. Chances work for us for around seven years, you know, and, and just, it's just, it's hard. I mean, we, we had a fish fry at our farm shop and I was cooking fish and, and it was for lunch. And, and, and I remember, I mean, it was like, chance was supposed to be at work at 10 o'clock that morning. 
And uh, Caitlin, which our store manager, she came down to eat fish with us, which our farm shop is just right across the road from our store. So our, our store manager was there and, and I'll remember what she just started eating. We just serving plates. It's probably a little bit after 12 and she stood up and just obviously distressed and, and crying and on the phone. And that's when she got the call that chance was, was shot. And of course, at that time, we didn't know accident. Like we didn't know, you know, is it accident? Who what happened? You know, and, and then the more details come in and then reports and then, you know, and, for us, as things develop, and you know, goodness, it's the it's the negative part of social media that I just despise. As those things happen, everybody points fingers, and everybody, well, what about this or what about that? And I'm just like, I told our staff, I was like, listen, and even Seth, our our marketing manager, I was like, we cannot get into the details of this case because we don't know. The only thing we can share is what is publicly available, what the district attorney says. You know, from a law enforcement standpoint and investigative standpoint, that's the only thing you could say. And and we're not investigators. We don't know. And uh, so that, you know, everything I've said today is is has been been released in a sense from, you know, preliminary investigation of, of what happened. Um, and, and like I say, when the when the uh, TBI report comes back out, you know, and I'd encourage listeners to, to, to even research it, research it, you know, when it comes out that way, you'll have a little bit of a closure on it. And maybe, maybe the t- timeline of events will make sense, you know, um, and, and all that, but just a tragic, a tragic deal that, that from what I understand, you know, a, a gentleman has, has hunted a location for a while that has some, demons with dementia and I'm, I'm assuming or mentally going on that he can't control. And at the end of the day, you can't control that. And, and it, it just something snapped and it pushed him over the edge. And here we are. It's just, there, there's a lot of lessons to take out of it, but we've all been there on public areas in hunt positions of Somebody got there first in the deer woods or somebody beat you to the, the, the hole on a rev, you know, on a public area. You, it's not worth it. It's go, go make the day what it can. And we all got guns. We're, we're dealing with heated situations and tempers, losing tempers with loaded firearms involved. And it's just, it's not good. It's not good to ever get into any kind of argument over. A duck, go the next day and hunt him again. But it sounds like there's just no. a lot of buildup and a lot of buildup. And it finally comes down to this and it, it, the dementia and the mental issues. It's just sad. The moms, the dads, the sisters, the brothers, yeah, the nephews. It's terrible. It, and from what I understand, too, from the the one survivor in it is, is you know, when it happened and, you know, like he was even said, he thought it was an accident. Like a gun goes off and it's like, it, you never think that. You know, and, and and I heard that. Now, granted, this, you know, like I say, this is just me from what I've been told, you know, but and all the details will come out in the investigation when it's finalized. But, you know, if that happens, I could try to put myself in that shoes like you're never thinking it's intentional. You're, you know, I, and I can tell you this and I, I think I guess the bank chance and I didn't know Zach as well, but I can tell you a chance like goodness, if I'm going to. I mean, Chance was our, our firearm department manager. He's big in tactical firearms. Like he is a strong, a very athletic. Like, like if he knew the threat was approaching, like he's going to be. I'm just he can protect himself. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. not like, and that's just me saying that of knowing him. 
and 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 the gentleman that the suspect that died, you know, was was in his his upper seventies. as an older gentleman, um, and 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 truthfully for him, there's no hit. And let me and this needs to be said. Even with him, there's no history of of violence. There's no criminal record, which it makes it even bizarre. Well liked in the community, you know. And then after this happened, there's people like. Well, I've heard that he had some bad reports that, you know, there's some early signs of dementia coming in. Like, so, you know, and, and I don't know if that's confirmed, but it, you know, it makes you wonder like what, and, and it also should bring awareness to mental health issues. You know, there's it just, you know, there's things that happen and I, I don't know, you just, I, I, Chad, it could have been me and you in there. And that, that's one thing to take away from this conversation. It very well could have been me and you or anybody listening. And there's not a single thing we could have done. Nope. Sad. It's it's just I wanted to, I, I wanted to touch on it today because I knew you had personal ties with your store, your your company, and your family, and your friends, and your employee. All this like it's a big deal, and I just wanted to touch on it because I wanted to hear it from you. Of this, it's easy to put it in our back pocket and say, "Oh, that'll never happen to me," or "I'm across the country and nothing's like that's gonna." But there's people affected by this, and it's nice to see the industry yeah. come together. And man, I I. Well, I pr- and I, you know, and, and I want to kind of sum that up to say this. I'm not in a position to talk about the investigation other than just what I've heard from the district attorney and what's publicly available. And I want to stress that as much as I can. You know, I don't want rumors to spread. I, I don't know. Just go read your the local papers of University of Tennessee and the TBI reports, and then you can, you know, get the official investigation. The only reason I'm even willing to talk about it, and I, I was even hesitant to even talk to anybody about it before now is because, you know, I'm not qualified to, and I don't know other than reading what's the press release. But at the end of the day, now that time's passed, you've seen some of the preliminary, you know, reports from law enforcement and what they're saying, you know, um, you know, unless there's some crazy autopsy report that's unforeseen, you know, it looks like this case is closed. So then you go with what you've been told, um, the only reason I'm even willing to talk about it is to share the legacy of Chance and Zach and who they were, what they were about. And, and I thought about it. I thought, you know, if, if, if it if it if, if people hear Chance Black and Zach Grooms, you know, in California, you know, maybe that'll make their families happy. You know, and if if that's true, then I'm all in. Like, put me in God. What can I do? Because that's my mission. You know, and I think I know. The hunting industry feels the same way. And I think that's why they've showed out for, with support, you know, so whatever we can do, like this is, you know, it's, it's all about rallying, rallying around their families and showing them love and showing them support in this time. And, and that's the reason, I mean, goodness, that's the reason we're talking about it today. Very well said, Kelly Powers. And I truly appreciate you coming on here. I would like to challenge you to, you come up with the next topic that we're going to talk about on the podcast and you text me and say, I got one, but you got to come up with one. There's got to be something out there. Squirrel gravy, turkey hunting. It's getting ready to be turkey season. But let's talk about something coming up, Kelly. I appreciate you being here. All right, man. That sounds good. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Kelly Powers, the man, Final Flight Outfitters. Today's episode of the Fowl Life Podcast, again, brought to you by our friends at Gerber Gear and Final Flight Outfitters in Tennessee. Check them out online. What's the website, Kelly Powers? Finalflight.net. Finalflight.net. Get on their mailing list, catalogs, online orders. What a community, what a culture. I remember 
when it first started. I remember how little, I think it was a one page or two page, a little duck commander, little Tim grounds in there. And it's grown into a monster kudos to the powers family. They worked their butts off. And then like Kelly said, they put faith family in the outdoors first in that order. And that's why they're successful because they never forget where they come from. They're rooted in that part of Tennessee and they take care of theirs and they take care of yours when asked to do so. That's why I always like to have Kelly on here. He's a positive influence in our space. Kelly, thank you, my brother. Thank you, buddy. I love, love doing it anytime, man. A lot of fun. All right. I'll be in touch with you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Tom, Jake, hit that button. This song is called My Foul Life by 2AM Logic. <laughs>